Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, Ariana Brocious and I are digging into compost and cow poop. Yeah, manure really matters because nationally, 37% of methane emissions come from cows. A lot of that is actually cow burps, which we'll get into later, but a big chunk is cow poop. Right, and not just manure. Landfills release a lot of methane too. In fact, 17% of all U.S. methane emissions come from landfills, and most of that is from food waste. In a 20-year time frame, methane has 80 times more warming power to the climate than carbon dioxide. California has a new law that aims to tackle methane from these two main sources, cows and landfills. We're spending today's show talking about it because California has a track record of setting national policy, or at least leading by example. Last year at COP26 in Glasgow, more than 100 countries, including the U.S., signed the Methane Pledge, promising to reduce methane emissions by 30 percent by 2030. The California law targets a 40 percent reduction in the same time frame, so it's ambitious. It is. And the more I learn about this law, known as Senate Bill 1383 or SB 1383, the more interesting and complicated it gets. The law was backed by a rancher I've known for years, John Wick, who wanted to increase the supply of compost to spread on grasslands. He says studies show that causes more grass to grow and perform photosynthesis that pulls carbon from the atmosphere and stores some of it in soil. Soil people are some of the biggest optimists in the climate conversation. As the idea worked through the California legislature, the dairy and agriculture industries opposed it. At one point near the end of the legislative session, dairy walked out of the negotiations. Then the law was changed to include a lot of voluntary rules and subsidies. That brought big ag back on board. Some environmentalists say that also watered down the law. Still, the law you're talking about went into effect in January and it directly addresses the state's methane emissions from food waste in landfills. Communities are now required to collect organics, that means food and yard waste, and divert them to be made into compost that either goes back into the soil or is made into fuel. It's a big change in the way waste is handled for 40 million people. And it's also a big deal for California's $7.5 billion dairy industry. Right, and they have to cut their methane emissions by 40% as well. That's a big ask for the top dairy-producing state in the country. For dairies, the primary tools for achieving those reductions are what are called anaerobic digesters. These are basically tanks or enclosed lagoons where microbes break down manure to produce and capture methane that would otherwise go into the atmosphere. That gas can then be sold as a fuel. Proponents say turning waste into energy is a good step for addressing climate disruption. But as I said, it gets complicated. So stick with us as we uh, wade through it. Because investment and ownership structures are complex and varied, it's hard to make blanket statements about who profits and by how much from the sale of the gas captured by dairy digesters. According to Aaron Smith, an economist at UC Davis, credits from California's low carbon fuel standard could earn a dairy 50% more money than just selling cow's milk. He's not saying that the manure is more valuable than the milk, but dairies could profit selling both. I asked Michael Bocadoro, executive director of Dairy Cares, if this creates an incentive to add more cows that will poop out more money. Absolutely not. The reality is the dairy farmer is seeing somewhere between, in most cases, $100 to $200 per cow per year. 
they're being paid to provide manure feedstock for the digester. The rest of that um, operation and revenues are handled by the developer. And, you know, there's a lot of costs associated with these projects. Um, They cost about $3,000 per cow to install. So they can easily be upwards of six, eight, uh, $10 million per project. That's just on the dairy. And then there's huge costs associated with the, what we call the hub, where the gas is clean, conditioned, and compressed into a natural gas pipeline. Uh, Those facilities can easily run between 15 and 20 million dollars additional. So huge costs associated with all of this. Most of that money is not flowing to the dairyman. And as a result of that, the dairyman has little incentive to add cows. Cows are added on a dairy based on milk economics, not on biogas economics. It's just that simple. But according to Jay Jordan, policy coordinator at the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability, the added financial incentives to generate biogas lead to more concentrated dairies, worsening environmental impacts on communities of color. The way that the bill has played out has actually been incentivizing the status quo, right? Incentivizing the way that we produce uh, dairy in this in this state, which relies on um Manure lagoons, these large pits in the ground where they put the manure, um, liquefied manure, and that's kind of where we see, you know, some of the issues is from that management style, incentivizing large-scale factory farms and incentivizing the additional water and air quality pollution, incentivizing larger herd sizes, larger dairies by giving funding for things like dairy digesters to produce factory farm gas from those manure lagoons. Michael Bocadoro agrees that scale makes it easier for dairy producers to take advantage of state incentives for implementing digesters. But he takes issue with the idea that this leads to more cows overall. The data directs us in an entirely different conclusion, and that conclusion is cow numbers in California are declining not increasing. They've declined for the past 14 years since 2008 in the state. And all expectations are the number of dairy cows in the state are going to continue to decline somewhere between a half of a percent per year and 2% per year. Lots of reasons for that, but labor costs, um, water scarcity, other issues are driving farming in California to downsize, not just the dairy farms. We're expected to lose about a million acres of productive farmland in California over the next decade because just from water scarcity concerns and groundwater regulation in the state. So that doesn't mean a few dairies won't get a little bit larger. We're always looking for opportunities, any business, to grow its business a little bit to offset rising costs. And I think we all know we're seeing rising costs right now with inflation. So always some incentive to increase, but it all has to be done with proper environmental permitting, too. And I think that's often lost on folks, the level of regulation that these dairies face in California. And so each of these projects is regulated for air quality, for water quality, for local land use. And in addition to that, um, if we get a grant for one of these projects, we have to do outreach to the local communities, including the disadvantaged communities in the state. So there's tremendous amount of effort built into the process to give local communities the opportunity to raise concerns and then the projects can seek to mitigate those concerns. Yet according to Jay Jordan and others I've spoken with, the environmental justice community got left out of the final shaping of the law. Not only that, 
But in exchange for accepting methane limits, the dairy industry got a temporary pass on complying with new environmental regulations. Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability and our partners, environmental justice groups, climate justice groups, we really weren't a big part of the conversation. We weren't really consulted and brought into that um, negotiation uh, very effectively during the development of SB 1383. Um, So, you know, there were some changes and and things that were included in the bill and the legislation um, that, you know, didn't necessarily fit with the types of priorities that that we have. So one of those things is that the the bill really looks at trying to reduce methane emissions from dairies by 40% um, by 2030. So really trying to decrease our greenhouse gas emissions as a state, knowing that methane from livestock is a really big um, producer of methane, and which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. And so from our perspective, I think, you know, we were really looking at, well, maybe we should be thinking about regulating dairies like we do so many other industries in the state of California in order to deal with the climate change issue, this, this crisis that we're all facing today. And regulations are really important because um, it's much more of a direct way of reducing emissions rather than sort of um, spending years and years and years trying to put money into various incentives um, to reduce that methane. So one of the things that was included in the in the bill at the last minute was that the state could actually not regulate dairies any time before January 1st of 2024. And that's been a really big sticking point for us um, because what, what we'd like to see is, is those regulations actually um, start now um, before we kind of continue to dig ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole. Michael Bocadora. I, I struggle with the concept that uh, this was in any way a pass. The idea that reducing methane by 40% is extremely, extremely ambitious. And yes, there are incentives in this law and in all of California's climate programs for the regulated entities. Um, you know, the cap and trade program is another great example that um, regulates many of the industries you talked about. That's designed around a market-based incentive program. The money that's raised from the cap and trade program goes into a program we call the um, Climate Investments Portfolio. And that money is then spent on projects like digesters to reduce greenhouse gases. And in fact, the Dairy Digester Program is the most effective program that's currently being implemented in California across the board. It's providing um, about 30% of the reductions from all the programs combined, and it's receiving about 2% of the funding. So it's a tremendously effective program. But I think that the big point here is we did Um, make sure that the incentives would be there. And we also made sure that policies going forward would not in any way simply displace the dairy industry in California, what we call leakage, and simply have that pop up in another state or another country, because that's a big concern. We're very efficient here, and we shouldn't lose the sight of what efficiency can provide. Um, But if our cows are simply put on U-Haul trucks and shipped to another state, emissions are likely going to be higher. They're not going to be regulated. And as a result, global climate change gets worse, period. That's not success. That's failure. 
So, you know, the program in California was designed to ensure success and incentives are the best way to ensure success. And incentives have been shown as the best way to keep costs down for consumers. One problem here, as with other climate policies, is that even if there's a net reduction in statewide climate disrupting emissions, there may still be negative local impacts. You know, in all the work that we do, we're looking out for ways that the state's efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and combat climate change, which is obviously so critical, you know, how are they also prioritizing social equity, public health, air and water quality, and all of those things that are important to local communities. Um, and we know that it's mostly lower income communities of color who bear the weight of that localized industrial pollution and also the impacts of climate change. So how do we bridge this divide? Many environmentalists believe the problem isn't just with cow poop, it's with the whole cow. And that completely eliminating cows from the food system is the single greatest climate-saving action we can take. But Jay Jordan doesn't fall into that camp. I have nothing against cows. This is definitely not, <laughs> not their fault. No, we're not, we're not, um, we're not here to, to talk about the elimination of cows in the state of California. We are here to talk about the, you know, the trends that have led to people's drinking water being contaminated, not being able to take showers in their own homes, um, having particulate matter, having, you know, various types of air pollution, having odors and flies around their homes as they watch these dairies expand. So, you know, this isn't about um, trying to attack an industry. It's not about, um, you know, wanting, wanting an industry to go down. This is really about trying to protect the health and well-being of people and of the environment, while also acknowledging the future for farmers. I think the reality is that the dairy industry is struggling and they're is a lot to be gained, I think, you know, from all sides of this issue. Um, if we rethink how we're doing animal agriculture in this state, you know, so I, I do think that there's there are multi multiple benefits um, to a transition to another type of agriculture that does not necessarily, um, you know, that that is actually good for people, that's good for the planet, and that's good for farmers. In other words, both sides agree on the importance of reducing methane emissions. But for Jay Jordan, this should be achieved through the level of regulation that other industries faced, rather than incentivizing entrenched industrial agriculture. We would argue that we shouldn't be relying on manure lagoons in the first place. And so much of the, the conversation at the state is about, you know, having these manure lagoons and accepting them as, as the baseline. And what we want to push back on is that idea that, you know, this is some naturally occurring way of producing dairy, that this is somehow the only way we could possibly ever uh, produce milk in the state. And in reality, there are, there are other ways. There's, you know, there's other types of agroecological practices, management decisions, um, pasture-based dairy. There's, there's other forms of animal agriculture that do not have such a devastating impact on the environment on on people and so to sort of start with this baseline of well the lagoons are there and they're always going to be there i think really does a disservice to the communities that are being deeply impacted by that 
But how realistic is the idea that we could meet rising global demand with a pasture-based system? Later in this episode, Ariana Brocia speaks with Alan Williams, a sixth-generation farmer who argues not only that it can be done, but that if we raised only grass-fed cows, we wouldn't need the digesters at all. That microbes in the soil of properly managed grasslands would absorb the methane as they did when the continent was covered with other ruminants like bison and elk. Michael Bocadoro of Dairy Cares has a different take. With all food production, including dairy, efficiencies are friend. We can produce more food with fewer resources. That's a huge benefit for the um, consumers and for the state. From an environmental standpoint, it's phenomenal. And we've been doing that in California, producing more milk with fewer cows. And it benefits the environment across the board. According to the University of California that did some research a few years ago, 89% less land, 88% less water, 45% less greenhouse gases, less fossil fuel, less fertilizer, less pesticides. So across the board, environmental benefits. So big or efficient is not necessarily bad. In fact, I'd argue that we can't do it without it. There's no way to feed a growing national and world population without efficient farming practices. And let's talk about pasture-based operations. They're certainly an important part of, of California. They provide a very important niche product, mostly um, providing organic milk. But all farms cannot be pasture-based in California. The water supply in the San Joaquin Valley is not there to support irrigated pasture that would be necessary to do that. And let's not lose sight of the fact that those farms are going to be much less efficient in terms of producing milk, which means we're going to need a lot more cows in California to produce the same amount of milk. And that's going to overall lead to higher greenhouse gas emissions, not lower for Jay Jordan, the issue is far more complicated, and it stems from California's low-carbon fuel standard, which offers subsidies to produce so-called renewable methane. We're seeing programs at the state level that are using huge amounts of money to both justify expansion of dairies and the production of biogas, um, and also, you know, creating additional pollution and creating, um, in the case of the low carbon fuel standard, there's actually um, the ability for the production of this gas coming from dairies to essentially offset the production of, uh, of oil from oil refineries. In other words, under California's climate laws, an oil refinery can essentially pay for the production of dairy methane as a way to excuse their production of other fossil fuels. So this is a lot bigger than just the dairy industry as well. There's an energy um, economy that's also kind of tied in with this issue. And while it's arguably better that dairy methane gets used productively rather than being released directly into the atmosphere, Jay Jordan argues that it's not actually a clean fuel. The same pollutants are present in, in factory farm gas that are, that are in natural gas, and there are still air pollution um, and emissions associated with that gas being burned. In addition to that, we're not talking about, you know, many of the upstream emissions associated with uh, the production of the gas, the raising of the cows, the feed, the silage, um, the enteric emissions, which are just from basically cows burps and um, farts and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so there are other emissions that are not kind of being considered anywhere in the life cycle of that fuel. 
And so what's happening is that we're seeing if that methane is getting claimed from the gas from the digester, then a bunch of methane can then be produced and emitted from, for example, an oil refinery. So it may seem as though there's, you know, a reduction because, oh, there's diesel being displaced, but there's actually, you know, a a whole bunch of accounting happening at the state level, a lot of throwing numbers around that really, in reality, we're not seeing that reduction. We're not seeing the evidence and a true evaluation and a true accounting of that reduction. Okay, so that's kind of the issue here is that there's so many different um, ways that the state is claiming that there are reductions in the transportation sector, in the agriculture sector, but it really doesn't all add up. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about how to deal with methane from cow manure and food waste. Coming up, functionally and financially, how will composting work on a statewide scale? Primarily, it's about farmers being able to buy most of this material. They buy about two-thirds of what's currently being produced, and what's currently being produced will be doubled, essentially, in volume if SB 1383 is successful in meeting the 75% mandate of diverting organics. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Before the break, Ariana and I were talking about the dairy side of California's new methane law. Ariana, after I spoke with Michael Bocadoro and Jay Jordan, I also talked with Brent Newell, senior attorney with Public Justice, who's concerned that California's web of climate policies overseen by different agencies, including the Air Board, Department of Food and Agriculture, and others, may be unintentionally double-counting emission reductions. The system is so complex with trading and credits that it's difficult to determine what's really going on, even for people in the system. Yeah, it sounds complex, even hearing you explain all the different agencies involved. So even though converting waste to energy sounds like a good thing, we're not really sure if we'll be meeting the goals of reducing methane emissions by 40%. Ever since Arnold Schwarzenegger started California down this path 15 years ago, there's been debate whether the claimed reductions are the actual realized reductions. Well, we know that displacing diesel is a good thing for people breathing in deadly particulates, but converting methane from cow manure into electricity sounds a little dubious because we could be getting that energy from cleaner sources like wind or solar, right? Absolutely. Methane gas is not really a clean source of energy. And of course, there's the perennial trade-off between the macro global benefits and local harms when projects like these negatively impact local communities. This is a continuing narrative in environmental justice. Big picture problems get solved, but local communities of color still get stuck with dirty air and water. So we talked about the dairy side. Now let's turn to organic waste. And here we're talking about food waste, the kind that you might be putting in the garbage or down the disposal every night. California residents now have to divert that waste into a new green waste bin. And instead of being compacted in a landfill where it will rot and off-gas methane, The idea is that it will be converted into compost, which can then store more carbon in the soil. Exactly. Let's say we put a banana peel in the compost bin instead of the trash can. I asked Neil Edgar, executive director of the California Compost Coalition, to walk us through the path of that banana peel. The banana peel would first leave your house and go to a transfer station, most likely be 
conglomerated into a larger load in a larger truck and hauled out to a composting facility where it would be processed through their system. It would run through this system and be composted in uh, in a few weeks and be ready to use for as a soil amendment within roughly a, a 10-week time frame. So within 10 weeks of leaving uh, someone's house, that banana peel is now compost ready to be sold. What, what kind of price, uh, what kind of prices are we talking about here? Is this a, a you know, a um, viable product that is really sought after? Um, it, it And it is. Uh, most of the composters and have been very successful in building markets over time. So um, when these programs started up, it was, um, you know, they, they had to hire marketing people. And so compost facilities, um, whether it was a Recology's team or other composters um, in the Bay Area, at, they hired marketing people to go out and meet with farming groups and meet with landscapers and work on developing specifications for erosion control, which are employed with Caltrans right now. Um, and we helped work on a lot of that early measures to try to help build markets. But primarily, it's about farmers being able to buy most of this material. Uh, they buy about two-thirds of what's currently being produced. And what's currently being produced will be doubled, essentially, in volume if SB 1383 is successful in meeting the 75% mandate of diverting organics. So the pricing varies based upon quality, uh, based upon location. Um, in some areas, the supply is uh, distant from the composter, the producer. And so the transportation costs can be a large portion of the total cost of getting the materials delivered. And then there are spreading costs and moving the material uh, around their the farms. It varies. Uh, and then there are bag products that you see at your big box retailers, Home Depot, Lowe's, and other, other outlets are selling compost by the bag, um, which is probably the highest price you'll see. Soil advocates for years have been saying that spreading compost on California's grasslands will fertilize more grass, which causes more photosynthesis, takes carbon dioxide out of the air, puts it into the soil where some of it stays. Um, that's pretty basic science, but there's been a problem with scaling it. So what will this do now, this new supply of compost, do for grasslands and ranges, free-range cow areas in California? Well, we're hoping in some areas that the the mandate for procurement from local governments as part of this 1383 implementation will enable them or encourage them to fund some of these rangeland applications across the state and in an effort to provide the climate benefits that can be developed by doing so. Most jurisdictions are not going to actually be able to consume or use all of the compost that are targeted for their procurement programs and mandated under the regulations. A um, number of them are going to have to come up with some maybe out-of-the-box solutions like rangeland applications or providing compost to local disadvantaged farmers who are trying to build soil health on their farms, supporting community gardens and community composting organizations to develop urban infrastructure 
and you know it's amazing that in many of the large cities in in the Central Valley and throughout California you have food deserts where there are no you know fresh fruits and vegetables readily available so supporting urban farming and community gardens is a way to have those procurement requirements go back into the community to help develop better uh, a better approach to food insecurity than we have currently. Neil Edgar is executive director of the California Compost Coalition. Neil, thanks for coming on Climate One today. You're welcome, Greg. So far in this episode, we've been talking about waste conversion and composting at scale, but there are other players in the market too. Compostable LA is a small-scale composting service based on a membership model. People can sign up for a weekly service where a full bucket of food scraps is exchanged for a clean one. Compostable LA works with a network of urban farmers to compost food scraps and then uses that compost on farms and redistributes it to members of the wider community. Let's hear from the company's driving force. My name is Monique Figueredo, and I am the founder, co-owner, and CEO of Compostable LA. Compostable LA is a food scrap pickup service, and our mission is to make composting as accessible to people as possible, because I truly believe that composting is one of the most impactful things you can do for climate change. Composting is so impactful for the climate because of two things. One, it takes organics out of a landfill and organics in a landfill become methane. They kind of slowly mummify while rotting because the conditions in a landfill are so tightly packed that they create these anaerobic conditions, these conditions without oxygen. And when that happens, food scraps can't decompose properly. And so they release methane, which is way worse than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years of its life. So if we're talking about reversing climate impact before 2050, like a lot of the scientists are saying, we have to get methane under control. And then the other part of composting, which I really think is the the powerful part of composting is the soil creation aspect. Because when you create healthy soil and when healthy soil has a relationship with plants, you get this entire other sphere of benefits. You have stormwater filtration. It's holding water to help with flooding and drought. It's creating more nutrient-dense food because there's more nutrients in the soil itself from the compost. So, you know, it's healthy humans. uh, It's healthy air because it's pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and storing it in the ground where it's good for the plants. So it gets deeper and deeper and deeper the further you start digging into the world of composting. Growing your own food is one of our core human rights. I mean, it's something humans have been doing since the beginning of time, but soil can be prohibitively expensive. Growing your own food shouldn't be a privilege. Not only that, when you talk about community-based systems like community composters, we are the anti-nimbyism. We're saying we want this material in our backyard. We don't want to ship it to large anaerobic digesters or incinerators out on in different disenfranchised communities. You know, we want to keep it here. It's a resource. We want to distribute it to the community so they can grow their own food. So from a food sovereignty aspect and from an environmental justice aspect, community composting is this antidote. 
So as SB 1383 goes into effect, which is the new California law for organics, our hope is that the networks that community composters are trying to create is not lost in the spirit of efficiency and compliance. I think SB 1383 is incredibly validating for composters who have been saying that there needs to be drastic movement around um, soil creation and um, methane reduction. But we want to make sure that as this regulation gets implemented, we don't lose the beautiful, vibrant picture of diversity that could be present in order to accomplish the regulations. So yes, major haulers can do the most efficient means of moving your food scraps from point A to point B, but there might be environmental justice concerns in regards to rapid, large-scale scaling. And like, who are the communities impacted by that? Where are the anaerobic digesters being put? And is waste to energy really the way we want to be using this resource? Because it kind of breaks the recycling aspect of organic management um, because it's just turning into to energy and you burn that and then it's gone versus if you compost it, it's, it's soil, it grows food, it gets composted, soil, it grows food, and it's this whole cyclical nature. So what I would really love to see is this ecosystem, large-scale haulers, community composters, people doing it in their backyards, neighbor sharing systems, just this whole thing of people working together because that diversity and redundancy in ecosystems is what creates stability. It's what creates justice. One solution doesn't fit all. The reason I started composting is because I wanted to be in service to my community. Composting is the venue with which I create and show love for the people I live near. I think collective action can be really a powerful antidote to climate anxiety and hopelessness and feeling overwhelmed. And I wanted to create this space where people felt like they were doing their part. And that doesn't let big corporations off the hook, but it does say, I'm not just standing here paralyzed. And so it's it's really a place for empowerment for Los Angeles. It's a place to come together and show what individual action can do. And the way we do that is composting. That was Monique Figueredo, founder, co-owner, and CEO of Compostable LA. You're listening to a conversation about composting, cows, and addressing the methane menace. Coming up, how adaptive grazing can reduce the methane that cows generate compared to a concentrated animal feeding operation, or CAFO. So if you're going to have a CAFO system, you know you're going to produce more methane that's going to be released into the atmosphere. You better be feeding something to reduce that methane and even using methane digesters. But if you're out on a pasture system using adaptive grazing, none of that is needed. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Ariana Brocious. It takes about 3,000 years for nature to produce six inches of topsoil. But every 28 years, an inch of that is lost as a result of current farming practices. A report last year estimated the most fertile topsoil is entirely gone from a third of all the farming land in the upper Midwest. The implications of this are drastic for land and the climate. 
Alan Williams is a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Understanding Ag. He says when we lose topsoil, we also lose water filtration and soil fertility, not to mention putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. As we lose more and more topsoil, then what we are seeing is we are seeing a definite heating up of the planet. And that's because we have a lot more exposed soil surface. We have measured soil temperatures repeatedly in virtually every region of North America and in many other countries. And what we find is that when soils are protected, when they have plants and living roots growing on those soils and the soil shaded from those plants, then even in the heat of the summer, say if if our temperature is 90 degrees Fahrenheit, the soil temperature can still be in the 70s or low 80s. But where we have soil that's exposed, then at an air temperature of 85 or 90 degrees, we can often see soil temperatures soaring to 140 to 150 degrees or higher. And when you consider hundreds of millions of acres in North America that can be bare and exposed at any given point in time, then that creates a tremendous heating of the atmosphere. So is what's good for the soil inherently good for both farmers and a rancher's bottom line uh, and the climate, or are there trade-offs that have to be made there? Fortunately, this is a true win-win-win. When we implement regenerative principles and practices, the farmers win in terms of soil health, soil function, profitability is enhanced significantly, which is very important today because way too many of our farmers are carrying a significant debt burden and they need to be able to get out from under that debt burden. Uh, So this is one of the ways to do that. But the other portion of the win here is that the ecosystem, the climate, and human health all are victories here. We see significantly better nutrient density in foods that are grown this way because they're grown in a healthier soil. Therefore, our own human health improves significantly, and obviously, ecosystem health and climate health improves along with that. So you argue that the world has supported grazing animals on every continent for millions of years, and ruminants always have always produced methane, but lately it's become a problem in part because of the soil degradation we've been talking about, um, and that soil degradation leading to the fact that, that soil does not have as many methane-digesting microbes as it used to. Is that right? It's actually a combination of factors, to be quite honest with you. So number one, as almost all of the research looking at methane emissions from ruminant animals like cattle and things like that were done in animals in a CAFO or confined situation or in situations where they were in conventional grazing systems. Uh, And so that data is reflective of the way those animals were managed, okay? And we always have to understand that. So it's not something inherent in the animals itself. It's inherent in the way that we as humans manage those animals. So what we have found are two primary things here. 
One is that in degraded soils, we have destroyed a lot of the microbes that actually capture and digest, utilize methane. This has always been a natural process with any ruminant, any wild ruminant burps methane just like a cow does, and they always have. But we had the microbial population in the soil that was functioning to be able to capture that methane and turn it into other things. And so we know now that as we rebuild the soil microbial population, that we can jumpstart that process all over again. But the other thing that we know is that as we increase the diversity of the plant species that are growing out there, and therefore increase the phytonutrient richness and diversity in the diet of the animals, that they actually produce less methane in their own digestion by eating a more diverse diet. You mentioned CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, which is how a lot of the meat and dairy is produced, especially in the U.S. How can different grazing techniques rejuvenate the soil health, as you're talking about, to sequester more carbon and en enhance those methane-eating microbes? So, first of all, if animals are in a CAFO system, they're not grazing at all. So we have a complete lack of any grazing impact whatsoever, and, and we have to understand that. Uh, but secondly, if you are grazing, and, and that's exactly what should, we should be doing with our ruminant animals, they, they, were, they were designed by nature to be out there grazing, not to be in a CAFO situation. Uh, and that's where they perform by far the very best and where they're the healthiest as well. But if we are grazing, we need to graze adaptively. And when I say that, I'm talking about a system of grazing that mimics the way that the wild ruminants grazed and moved across the landscape. Wild ruminants had a vast array of plant species that they were eating every day, and they were constantly moving across the landscape. They weren't just confined to one pasture or, or little area for an extended period of time. And so by using biomimicry and ecomimicry in the way that we graze our domesticated animals, we can use them as a proxy for the wild ruminants. And we can graze them in a manner by moving them every day using temporary fencing or even herding techniques. We simulate what the wild ruminants did and therefore get the positive results that the wild ruminants did. So part of the reason that animals are raised in CAFOs now is because it makes the meat more affordable, essentially. It's an easier way, you could argue, um, to produce a lot at scale. And the kind of practices you're describing sound more labor-intensive on the part of a rancher. And then, though grass-fed beef can often command a higher price point, I'm curious how you see those, those types of operations scaling. Are we going to be able to produce the same volume of meat that Americans you know, expect with these types of practices as opposed to the confined animal operations? You know, we've actually run the numbers on that. And actually, we can produce more total animal protein if we go back to pasture production than in CAFO production. And that includes, we, we, can, we can actually produce not only more beef, but more milk, more cheese, more eggs, more pork, 
so on and so forth, more poultry, more broilers, that type of thing. Pastured production does not mean that we're going to produce far less protein. As a matter of fact, it's really quite the opposite if we do it correctly. Uh, and so what we find here is that, first of all, it, it's not more labor intensive. Farmers and ranchers just think it is. Okay, But once you actually start implementing these principles and practices, you find that all you're doing is trading labor for labor. Some of the other things that you had to do every day because of the confinement, you no longer have to do that. And, and instead, we're replacing that labor with just simply moving the livestock on a daily basis. It actually takes very little time to do that once they're well trained to that daily movement. The other thing is that in doing an analysis of the amount of grassland that we have available and that's significantly underutilized in the U.S., uh, right now, for instance, in the U.S., we're producing about 30 to 32 million head of grain-fed cattle annually, cattle-fed in feedlots. But if we, we have enough grassland right now in the U.S. without harming anything else at all, any wildlife or anything else, to be able to produce more than 50 million head annually of grass-fed individuals. So we could actually 100% replace the grain-fed with the grass-fed in a very short order if we so desired. And if we look at cost, it's actually not more costly to produce a grass-fed animal on the production side. Many times it can be lower cost than the grains and the transport of those grains for the feedlot production. The cost issues come in on the processing side. For, for pastured protein production, we need more processing capacity. The big guys, you know, the Cargills, the Tysons, JBSs of the world, they have these massive processing plants that allow them to have significant capture of economies of scale. And in the grass-fed sector, we don't have those size plants. So we need more processing capacity and we can keep pasture protein production in line with the cost for conventional protein production. According to the EPA, about 37% of methane emissions nationally come from cows, and a chunk of that comes from cow burps, essentially. So to reduce that, there've been there's been a lot of research into feed additives, things like seaweed, possibly oregano, other things that would be added to what cows eat and actually reduce the amount of gas they produce. And I'm curious what you think about that and how it fits in or doesn't with the regenerative agriculture you're discussing. So Again, the vast majority of that research was not done utilizing grass-fed cattle grazing highly diverse pastures. So, and I'm a scientist, and so as a research scientist myself, you have to take your results only within the context of the research. We can't extrapolate those results beyond the context of the research. So the research was done again on cattle predominantly in CAFO systems and not out actively grazing. Therefore, the conclusion that if we feed, you know, kelp, seaweed, all of these other things to cattle, you know, oregano, whatever, to reduce methane emissions through the burping, 
Uh, again, that's done through feeding in CAFO systems. So if you're going to have a CAFO system, you know you're going to produce more methane that's going to be released into the atmosphere. So yes, you better be feeding something to reduce that methane or either using and even using methane digesters. But if you're out on a pasture system using adaptive grazing, none of that is needed. It, it, it's, it, it goes by the wayside because you no longer have those same issues. In California, a law known as SB 1383 recently went into effect, and one of the ideas is to divert food waste from landfills, turn it into compost, and make it available to ranchers and farmers. I'm curious what you think of this idea, and if you think, if this were available to you know the farmers that you work with, if they would use it. Well, certainly we've got a problem. You know, in the U.S. alone, we waste approximately 40% of all food that's produced annually, which is, you know, just very, very disturbing. But globally, we waste several trillion pounds of food every year. So obviously, we've got to do something about that. And, and you know, being able to use that waste in the production of compost is absolutely something that I would heavily encourage. Why not take that waste and turn it into something that's going to be very beneficial to us? Again, as you said at the opening today, you know, we've had significant loss of, of topsoil and soil organic matter and carbon. So let's take this waste and make it useful to start restoring organic matter and carbon and, and building new topsoil. And yes, uh, there are many farmers and ranchers that that would use it. Now, the you know the biggest impediment is the fact that because compost has bulk, if you ship it too far, then the cost of that compost becomes prohibitive just because of shipping. So we've got to be able to produce compost near the farms and the ranches so that they can access it on a cost-effective basis to apply it. So you've consulted with more than 4,000 farmers across the Western Hemisphere. What ideas or practices are they most resistant to and why? Well, what I would have to say is just regenerative practices in general, uh, you know, which include adaptive grazing, moving to no-till, using complex cover crop mixes, minimizing disturbance, living roots in the ground year-round, so on and so forth. And introducing more diversity, those are the basic tenets of regenerative agriculture. But but the, there's there's really three big reasons that they resist, and and we identify these same three reasons over and over. Number one is uh, peer pressure. I, I grew up in a farming and ranching family. I'm sixth generation, and so I've been in agriculture my entire life, and I understand the peer pressure. As a farmer rancher, we're very conventional, we're very traditional. And when you, as an individual farmer, start to do something different than your neighbors, then they start to talk about you, and oftentimes not in a very good way. Uh, so the peer pressure can come from your neighbors, your friends, even your own family members. It comes from everybody that sells you something. It comes from your lender. It comes from, unfortunately, oftentimes, even from our universities, our extension service, and, and places like that. So they get peer pressure from all of these different sectors that are, that are telling them, no, just keep doing things like you're doing. Why in the world would you change what you're doing? And so they begin to doubt themselves. 
The next biggest barrier is their lack of education. You cannot implement what you do not know. And most farmers and ranchers do not inherently know how to farm a ranch regeneratively. That's not part of their equation or knowledge base. So they have to take time to educate themselves. That's why we started the Soil Health Academy, to be able to offer that practical hands-on education. And then the third barrier is their debt load. Way too many farmers are so heavily in debt that they're frightened to make any changes. Now, the same practices that you were implementing got you in debt, and this is what's so ironic about it. They, they're they afraid to change what they're doing now, even though what they're doing now got them into that debt situation because they're afraid that if they change anything, then it's going to cost them the farm because they're they're operating on such razor-thin margins right now. So those are the three principal barriers, and we work to be able to equip and supply and facilitate the farmer to be able to overcome all three of those principal barriers. Alan Williams is a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Grassfed Insights, Understanding Ag, and the Soil Health Academy. Alan, thanks for joining us on Climate One. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. On this Climate One, we've been talking about compost, manure, and methane. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, awkward, sometimes depressing, but it's critical to address the climate emergency. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review, or better yet, telling a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Colon. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.